Well, awesome. Good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Thankful to get to join you guys for worship this morning. We were uh, setting up this morning, and as soon as we got the speakers up, it just started pouring. And uh, I called Aaron, and I was like, is, it says 0% chance of rain. I checked like six times today. And he's like, yeah, there, I'm looking out my window, and I can see a single cloud over Eagle Point Park, so that's what that is. So we should be we should be good to go. So I'm glad that you are with us this morning. If you get drizzled on, I think that's just the rain came earlier and the trees are just kind of shaking it off, you know. So uh, we should be all right. But glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, excited to be with you, especially excited to open God's Word with you this morning uh, because we are starting this morning a brand new series, taking a look at one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. Over the next four weeks or so, we're going to be taking a look at the book of of Ruth and Ruth is a, a short book in the Old Testament, just four chapters, yet it contains what is probably one of the most compelling stories in all of Scripture. There is tragedy and loss and despair, and there's triumph and hope and loyalty and sacrifice and even a little bit of romance thrown in, right? There is something for everybody here. It is like the Netflix easy button, right? Like everyone is interested in this one, right? But what makes the story of Ruth even better is that it is a part of a much bigger story. You see, see the, the story of Ruth is really a part of the greater story of God's sovereign plan of redemption, his plan to redeem a people for himself, and in so doing, to, to bring a people out of emptiness and into fullness, and out of sorrow and into joy, and out from under the pain of hurt and into a life of hope and blessing. And see, so in that way, the, 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 the book of Ruth isn't really just a story about something that happened 3,000 years ago. Instead, is it a, is, it's a glimpse into a story that you and I are a part of today. It's a glimpse into God's ongoing plan of redemption. It's a story that you and I are a part of today. And, and I cannot wait to show you this amazing story over the next few weeks my prayer has been that, that as we would see the story of Ruth as a, as a microcosm, as just a glimpse into the greater story of God's plan of redemption for his people, that we would not only grow in our wonder of God, in our, in our, in our love for him, and our thankfulness to him, but that in response to seeing the story of his redeeming work, that we would joyfully join with him in the redeeming work that he is doing in our lives and in the lives of others all around us. And so to that end, let's pray this morning and we'll dive into God's word together. God, thank you so much for our time together. Thanks uh, for a beautiful, crisp morning. We are grateful to get to worship you. God, thanks that you have made this place for us so that we could do that, and we're grateful for that. God, we, we come this morning as we uh, come every week to your word, and we just humbly say, King Jesus, we need you to show it to us. God, we don't have what we need on our own to understand it rightly or to be able to respond rightly to it. Jesus, only you can enable that to happen in our hearts, and so we ask by your Spirit that you would graciously do that, that you would empower me to preach and teach rightly, and that you would enable us to hear and respond to you. Jesus, we ask that you would do that for our good and, and for our benefit, but more than anything, we ask for your great glory as we would be a people that responds rightly to you and to your word. And so, God, we come expectantly to your word, we come humbly to it, God, and we ask that you would be gracious to speak to us through it this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are in the book of Ruth. You can find it in your handouts, uh, or if you have a digital Bible, it's still there too. So we're on Ruth chapter 1 this morning. It begins this way. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And, he, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And may the Lord grant each of you to find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. And he said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters, for why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons that, you could become, that could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I were, there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even uh, death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so the two women went on until they had come to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, uh, I think if we're honest, the first chapter of Ruth seems like a bit of a downer, right? It seems like a bit of a downer. I think we can be honest about that. The first five verses alone, they, they set the stage for a story that is set in the context of a situation that has gone from bad to worse to full-on catastrophic, right? It, it, it is everything has hit the fan, and first off, the story takes place, it says, verse 1, in the days of the judges, in the days when the judges ruled, which, which was one of the darkest, most wicked, most rebellious, most sinful periods in all of Israel's history. The, the last verse in the book of Judges, it, it sums up the pattern of sin and rebellion that characterized this nearly 200-year period in Israel's history. It says this, it says, in those days Israel had no king, 
and everyone saw, everyone did as they saw fit. There was no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. You see, you see, the, God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He had brought them into the promised land of blessing, but instead of choosing to trust God and to worship him and to obey him, God's people instead are characterized by deciding to do whatever they see fit whatever they think is best. And what we see happening over and over and over again is a pattern of sin and rebellion and tragedy. You see, there's this cycle that keeps happening in the book of Judges. He's repeating itself over and over that God's people are engrossed in sin and as a result of giving into sin, they become attacked and surrounded by their enemies. And so they cry out to God for help and God raises up a judge who will come to their aid and who, and who will come to rescue them. But pretty soon, as, pretty much as soon as they are rescued, They just go right back to living in sin and living in rebellion. And the cycle starts over and over and over and over again. And see, and so that's the context in which the story of Ruth takes place. And and it just goes downhill from there. You see, not only is there sin and rebellion everywhere, there's a famine in the promised land. Literally, Bethlehem, it means the house of bread, has no bread. And the the author here of of Ruth is highlighting the ironic nature of this, that that in a place that is supposed to be full of blessing, in a place that is supposed to be full of God's people and God's worship, it is a place empty of God's worship, it is a place full of sin, it is a place instead empty of food. In the midst of this terrible situation, we meet this guy named Elimelech who has decided to move his family in the midst of this famine from Bethlehem, from the promised land to, to the land of Moab. And at first glance, it doesn't really seem like that bad of an idea. I mean, it's just Moab, I don't know, whatever, right? It kind of sounds like a cool place in Arizona. I don't really know, right? But, but ultimately, this is a terrible choice. You see, because moving to Moab was not like moving to Wisconsin if things get bad in Iowa. It's more like moving to Illinois, right? No one does that, right? No one does it. You would have to be full-on insane, right? Okay, so in all seriousness, though, right, uh, Moab was a place that God's people simply should not be. See, the, the Moabites were a people that began out of Lot's incestuous relationship with his own daughter in Genesis chapter 19. Throughout Scripture, they are repeatedly characterized as a wicked and deeply sexually perverse society. And furthermore, they worshiped the false god Chemosh, and they, and they lured others, especially God's people, into a worship of false gods. And so, and so over and over in Scripture, we see that the, that the Israelites, that God's people, are not to live in Moab. More than that, they're not to live around Moabites. Yet that's what, exactly what Elimelech decides he's going to do. And shock, it doesn't go great, Right? Verse 4, he dies, leaving his wife and their two sons, Malon and Killian, alone in a foreign land where there's no church and there's no faith community and there's no fellowship and there's no support. You see, Elimelech, he decided to trade a physical famine for a spiritual famine with his family, and it had disastrous consequences. See, the, the downward spiral continues when these two boys, they go on to marry pagan women. After 10 years, they die. And to top it all off, they have no children and no descendants, which means no one to carry on the family line, no one to care for Naomi, no one to care for these wives. You see, this is the ultimate curse in ancient Israel, is to have an end to your family line. And so this family's move to Moab, which was meant to be temporary, ends up lasting 10 years, and at the end of it, Naomi is left 
She's the only one in the family left, and she's lost everything. She's lost her home. She's lost her family. She's lost her future. You see, the picture we're left with at the end of verse 5 is one of absolute devastation and desperation. It's one of hopelessness. You see, and the, the question is, where is God in the midst of it? Where is God in the midst of this situation you see, and that leads us to verse 6. You see, verse 6 says this, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. You see, this verse is a, it's a microcosm of what we're going to see happening throughout the book of Ruth. You see, in the midst of sin and rebellion and suffering and pain, in the midst of people who are running far from God, God is not absent. He's not far off. He is not distant. He is not unengaged. He is not unconcerned. Instead, he is behind the scenes, sovereignly working. He's providing for his people. He is bringing life and hope where there is otherwise no life and no hope. You see, one of the most difficult aspects of suffering and of, and of hurt is, that, is the feeling that God is far from us. We assume that the hardships that we are experiencing are, are either God's indifference, his uncaringness for us, or his anger towards us. But what we're going to see happening throughout the book of Ruth is that it's in the very midst of suffering that God is actually sovereignly working behind the scenes to bring about the good of his people. And in verse 6, we see the first glimmer of that life, the first glimmer of that hope. And so Naomi, she hears about the Lord's provision for his people, and she decides with her two widowed daughters-in-law decide to head back to the promised land. But no sooner had they gotten on the road than Naomi stops the bus, and she tells her two daughters, do not come with me. You guys need to stay. She's, she's in verses 8 through 15. She's basically telling them, go back to your own people. She's saying, look, I got nothing for you, girls. I got nothing for you. I have, you come with me and you have no hope. You have no future. You have no husbands. You have no children. You have no jobs. You have no future. If you stay here, though, you stay in Moab, then you can have a life and a family and a future. You can start over. And they're all crying. Imagine how much these three women have been through over the course of the last 10 years. It was ravaging. Orpah decides to go back, which makes sense. But Ruth, the passage says, clings to Naomi. That word is the same word that Genesis 2 uses to describe the way a husband and wife leave their families and cling to one another in marriage. It's a, it's a word full of rich with a sense of devotion and a sense of commitment. It's, it sets the stage for Ruth's words, first words here in the book. In verses 16 and 17, she responds to Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God, and where you die, I there will also be buried. You see, Ruth, she tells Naomi, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to Moab. I'm, I am hitching my train to you and to your people and to your God, and I'm willing to leave my home, and I'm willing to leave my family and my religion and my security and everything as familiar to me. I am all in, she tells Naomi. You see, Ruth's words here, they're an incredible demonstration of her commitment and her faithfulness, not only to Naomi, but more importantly to God. You see, she has put all her eggs in the basket of the one true God and, the, and of his people being the one way forward for her. See, Ruth is a woman of incredible faith. 
And I don't want to give too much of the story away here. It is really hard not to just skip to chapter 4 and tell you how this thing wraps up, and it is incredible. But Ruth's words here and her actions here, her, her commitment to Naomi and to her God, they're not only a demonstration of the reality of Ruth's faith in God, they also become for Naomi a living demonstration of God's faithfulness to her. You see, throughout this story, what we're going to see is, is people who reflect the image of God, people who reflect his nature and his character, people who, people who reflect who he is to others in the story. And what we see in the very beginning here is that Ruth is going to become a picture to Naomi, a living demonstration to her of the faithfulness of God to Naomi. You see, Ruth has no earthly reason why she should commit herself to Naomi. I mean, how many of you would choose to commit your, your whole life to your bitter, widowed, old mother-in-law? Yeah, none of you, right? None of you would make that choice, right? Because no one wants to do that. Yet that's exactly what Ruth does. That's exactly what she does. You see, Ruth's love for Naomi, her commitment to her, becomes this incredible display of God's selfless love and commitment to his people. But we're not there yet, so we can't go down that road all the way. It's a sneak peek. It's so good. And so these two women, they head back to Bethlehem, and, and when they get there, everyone is shocked. Verse 19 says that the whole town is stirred, and they're all saying to themselves, is that, is that Naomi? Who, and who is that with her? What is going on here? It, it, what is happening? And Naomi responds to them. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, and says, she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? She says, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She goes on in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Verse 22, she says, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And in reading Naomi's response to these people, and reading, and reading what we see is we get a picture of of her understanding of the situation that she's in, but more importantly, we get a picture of her understanding of who God is and what he's like. It's really important that you see this this morning. Naomi gets some things right, but she also gets some things really tragically wrong. You see, Naomi rightly attributes her circumstances to the sovereign Lord. You see, she holds God accountable for the, her tragic life, referring to him as the Almighty or, or the Lord at least four times in the passages. And these are, these are titles for God that, that emphasize his omnipotence, that emphasize his power, that emphasize his supremacy over all things, his control, his sovereignty. You see, by accusing God, the Almighty, for her suffering, she's declaring that he's the one who's really in control of her situation. He is the one who's really in control of her life and all that's happening. That God is, when she says that God is sovereign, she, when the idea there is that God is, that he's overall, that he rules and that he reigns, that he is the one who is the highest authority. He is authority over everyone and everything. And she's right. She's right. You see, but what Naomi is wrong about is God's character. She gets that God is sovereign, that he is in charge, that he's in control, but she misunderstands his character. She, th she thinks that God's punishing her, that he's spiting her, that, that, that he's against her. But the reality is that that's not true. She, she is experiencing the consequences of living in a world and in a family that is marred by sin and rebellion and running from God. 
And the reality that her life is full of chaos and full of suffering is not God's punishment of her. It is, the, it is the natural outworking of a life that is marred by sin and a life and a family that has chosen to run from God in, a, in opposition towards him. It doesn't mean that God's punishing her. Yes, God has allowed these things into her life. This is so important that you understand this. You see, nothing happens without it passing through the hands of God. But not everything is from him. Nothing happens without passing through the hands of God, but not everything is from his hand. The pain and the suffering and the, and the difficult things that we walk through in life, that's not God's punishment of us. God allows those things into our lives, but that's not from him. See, God often allows pain and suffering and the consequences of sin into our lives, but he doesn't do it because he's mad or because he just wants to get even with us or because he's just like sticking it to the man for us being stupid or whatever it is. Over and over and over and over again in Scripture, what we see is that a God who is the, in, the, in the Bible who is overwhelmingly good. He is patient. He's merciful. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He's not spiteful. He's not vindictive. He, he instead is loving. You see, more than anything, what we see in Scripture is that God desperately loves his people. That he is for them. That he longs for their good. He is not against them. You see, in understanding that reality, that has huge implications for our lives. You see, if you just believe that God is sovereign, if you just believe that, that he's in charge, that he's in control, but that he's not good, then you will know that God's in control, that, but you will think that he is just cruel, that he's spiteful, that he's vindictive, that he's, that he's unjust, that he's uncaring, that he is uncommitted, unconcerned, just like Naomi does here. You see, but that's not the reality about who God is. God is sovereign, but he is also incredibly good. You see, the problem is that like Naomi, in the midst of suffering, we struggle to see both of those realities. There's often times in our lives where we think that God is far from us, where we think that he might be powerful and in control, but that he's not good. But the, the truth that the book of Ruth keeps showing us over and over and over again is that it's in fact in the midst of suffering, in the midst of those very times of heartache and of pain, that God is sovereignly, powerfully working behind the scenes. He is laying a foundation oftentimes for the greatest demonstrations of his faithfulness to us. You see, chapter one, it ends on this hope-filled cliffhanger. They've arrived in Bethlehem, it says, just as the barley harvest is beginning. You see, there is a harvest that is coming. And Naomi, she has no idea what lies ahead in those harvest fields for her. She's coming back. She's saying, I am empty. I have nothing. God is against me. But the reality is, is that in the midst of the, the suffering and in the midst of the pain that she is experiencing, in the midst of all of that, God is actually about to weave together in her story the story of all stories, a story of his blessing in the midst of her bitterness, a story of, of his redeeming purposes in the midst of her pain. Little does she know that this Moabite widow that is standing next to her, that she feels is not adding anything to her, is actually going to be for her a picture of the faithfulness and the fullness of God in person. You see, friends, the pictures that we have in the book of Ruth is of a God who is pursuing his people. A God who is sovereignly working behind the scenes, 
bringing about their good, I need you to hear this, in the midst of their rebellion against him. See, God often uses our own sin to bring about our own good and to show people his love and his kindness and his goodness. You see, in Ruth, what we see God doing is using Elimelech's foolishness and his rebellion and his folly and his running from God to set the stage for this demonstration of God's graciousness and his faithfulness and his redemption in the life of Naomi and of Ruth and ultimately in the the life of God's people as a whole. You see, this is the message of the gospel. It's It's that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our running from God, God is actually sovereignly setting the stage for his redeeming work in our lives. He's not waiting for us to clean ourselves up. He's not waiting for us to get our act together. He's not waiting for us to fix ourselves, to make ourselves ready for him. Instead, he is coming in power and in love to rescue us from ourselves. He's not coming to punish us. See, the gospel reminds us that Jesus already took all of the punishment for our sin. God has no punishment left to give. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if he is the one in whom you have trusted to make you right with God, then he has absorbed all of God's just wrath for your sin. God has no anger left for your sin for you. Jesus has taken it at all. And so Jesus then, he's coming in love to rescue his people and to redeem them, to bring them out of a place of emptiness and into a place of of fullness, to bring them out of a place of hopelessness and into a place of hope, to bring them out of a place of sorrow and hurt and pain into a life of blessing and joy. You see, the point of the story of Ruth is not be faithful like Ruth. You're not faithful Ruth. I'm not faithful Ruth. God is the one who is faithful. You see, if anything, we're like Elimelech in this story We're the ones who have run from God. We're the ones who have done our own thing. We have trusted in ourselves. We had tried to save ourselves and rely on our own selves. And God is the one who has come for us in the most unexpected of ways to rescue us from ourselves and our own running from and our own rebellion against him. God is the one who decides to commit himself to us when there is no reason why he should do it. You see, the gospel is a beautiful picture of God's selfless love for his people. And Ruth, this story, what we'll see in these coming weeks, that it is a microcosm of that great and beautiful reality. You see, what happens is if you try to put yourself in the story, if you try to look at this story and you say, I just need to be like Ruth in the story, or I need, to, I need to not be like Naomi, or I need to not do whatever, you're going to miss the whole point of it. The point of the story is to reveal something about who God is and what he's like. He is a sovereign and good God who in the midst of our pain and suffering, which is a result of our own rebellion from him, is actually sovereignly coming after us, setting the stage for his redeeming work in our lives, creating an avenue for blessing when there was only pain before. That's the good news of the gospel. That's who Jesus is. That's who the God that we worship is. You see, and it's him that we are remembering and celebrating when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves that it was Jesus who came for us, that he paid the penalty that we could not pay, that he lived the life that we should have lived, and that in dying, he made a way for us to be right with God. 
You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. The, the one thing that can do that is faith in Jesus and his redeeming work on your behalf. Instead, communion for us is a chance for us to remember, to celebrate all that he has done. That in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our running from him, the great God of the universe has come to give himself for us. He's seen in remembering that our hearts, they are intended to well up in love and joy and to give ourselves back to that God. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if, if he is the one in whom your hope is found, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. You don't, you don't need to be a member here. You just need to have trusted in Jesus. But if not, if that's not where you're at yet, if you're still figuring out who Jesus is to you or what it means to follow him or put your faith in him, I need you to hear this. You are welcome here. I'm so glad that you are here, but I would encourage you this morning, hold off on taking communion. Instead, come to Jesus. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Ask him in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of whatever it is that you are walking through. Ask him to meet you in it and to show himself to you. That you might see him as the sovereign king of the universe, but also as the great, loving, and good God that he is. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for this story we have in the book of Ruth. God, we are so grateful that it is a reminder for us of your sovereignty and your authority, but also, King Jesus, your goodness. And God, we come thankful that you, we come to your word this morning thankful that, that you have not left us in our sin and you have not left us in our running from you, that as well you're not punishing us or spiting us for it. Instead, you are sovereignly and in goodness, you are working behind the scenes to create for us a life of blessing and joy in relationship with you. And so God, we ask this morning that you would help us God, to be a people who is full of awe and wonder and joy because we see you as the sovereign God in whom we can trust, the one who is in control of all things, and the one as well who in the midst of even the hardest things is working for our good. And so we ask King Jesus that you would empower us not only to see that, but to live lives of joyful obedience unto you in light of it. God, we can't do that on our own. We need you to be enabling that in us, and we ask that you would. God, for our good, for your great glory, we pray. Amen.